Welcome to Conversations with Owens Community College President, Dr. Dion D. Somerville. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Dion D. Somerville. Whether this is your first time listening or if you've been with us since episode one, thank you for listening. We're so happy you're joining us as we explore the issues and meet the people who are important to Northwest Ohio and to Owens Community College. Please enjoy our previous episodes and subscribe to Conversations to join us for future episodes. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Adam Levine, the Edward Drummond and Florence Scott Libby President, Director, and CEO of the Toledo Museum of Art. At Owens, we are big supporters of the arts in our community, and so today we are delighted to have Adam with us. Adam started his museum career at the Met in New York City before first joining the Toledo Museum of Art as an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow in 2013. He spent six years at the museum, moving up to various positions until being named Deputy Director and Curator of Ancient Art. He then left Ohio to become the George W. and Kathleen I. Gibbs Director and CEO of the Cummer Museum of Art and Gardens in Jacksonville, Florida. In 2020, he returned to the Toledo Museum of Art to serve as its CEO. Adam graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Dartmouth College, where he majored in anthropology, social science, art history, and mathematics. He continued his studies as a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford, where he earned his master's degree with distinction and a doctorate in the history of art. He publishes widely and is a frequent presenter on topics ranging from ancient art and interpretive strategies to museum and management practices. Adam was also a recipient of the prestigious 20 Under 40 Award, which recognizes community leaders in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan back in 2017. Adam is a great friend to Owens Community College, and we are so grateful he agreed to join us for a conversation. Hello, Adam, and thank you for being our guest today. Good morning, Adam. I am so glad that you're able to join us today for our Conversations podcast. And as you may have heard from some of the other podcasts that we've done, I always like to ask our guests how they started their higher education journey. What was the deciding factor for you that you knew that you needed education beyond high school? And in your case, you have a very interesting history. You attended Dartmouth and then you went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And so talk about how you knew that this was a path for you. Good morning, Dr. Somerville, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, so I was very fortunate to be raised in a family that highly valued education, and I went to a college preparatory high school. So I was always working under the assumption that I would go to college. In fact, it just never occurred to me that I wouldn't have. And I was exposed to a lot of people who had gone to college and done extremely well. So the idea that college was in my future was in some ways always a given, but the reason it energized me was because I really understood that college was an opportunity to learn how to think. And it is incredibly important to develop specialized skills, but it is also important to develop a toolbox that allows you to work through problems that you will encounter in your life, not mm-hmm. just professionally. And that really dictated sort of my journey, my higher educational journey, because those places that I went are far less important than the pursuit of critical thinking abilities and then the application of those critical thinking abilities to all sorts of different problems, you know, ranging from business to art history in my case. That's really interesting because one of the things that I think we've 
lost a little bit of as a society, as a community, is critical thinking. And that some people believe that higher education is about indoctrination, but it really is supposed to be about helping you discern information, create knowledge for yourself, apply knowledge, things of that nature. And so I really think that's probably one of the most important functions that higher education has is that critical thinking aspect. I totally agree. And I think whether your course of study is narrow or whether your course of study is broad, whether you are a specialized institution that is teaching you a skill which you're going to use in the workforce tomorrow, or at a liberal arts institution which is trying to give you sort of the gamut of human experience, at the end of the day, each of those curricular paths is about obtaining greater and greater knowledge. And you are learning basic infrastructure of how to do that. Each lesson builds on the last. You are learning about things like scaffolding. You're learning about pedagogy, about how things are communicated to you. So there are all of these lessons learned from the higher educational experience. And at some point, no matter where you work, you're going to have to mentor someone. You're going to have to teach someone. So I think we sometimes think about skills as very practical and very straight line. But the experience itself is valuable in ways that are hard to quantify. Because if you look out at the most successful people in the world, they have those quote-unquote soft skills as well. Mm -hmm. And those are things that you learn, I think, through the experience of higher education. I remember a year ago talking to employers and asking, you know, what are some of the things that you need? How can Owens help you? And it's amazing because the answers ranged from technical, but most of them that's what they wanted. They wanted the universal skills and even things that you don't think about in terms of work etiquette. Mm -hmm. um, and it's amazing how important all of that has become. People don't think about art museums this way and anticipating a question you might ask here. But one of the things that art museums are incredibly good at doing whether it is through specific curriculum or through the general experience, mm -hmm. is helping people understand how to use their visual sense and helping people understand actually how to look more closely. And we have found that engaging that skill set has not only sort of benefits in terms of helping people look, um, but also we've done some work with the Toledo Community Foundation and Old West End Neighborhood Initiatives um, and done some soft skill training ourselves at the Overland site when it opened a few years ago. And found exactly that. What Dana was most interested in and their hiring process was making sure that there was adequate technical knowledge, but also making sure that there was an understanding of those soft skills. And we were able to use the museum and some of the things that we do around looking and understanding what something looks like to someone else to help engender some of those soft skills. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So there's the, there's the looking at a piece of art. Mm -hmm. What do you see? There's perspective. And so when it comes to the universal skills, what exactly did the training entail? So there are two parts to this, right? So one is sort of the descriptive and the visual, right? So which is to say sort of I'm looking at something and I see it. Can I describe it in a way that someone else can understand? Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of great exercises for those who are listening. If you don't want to do it in front of a work of art, a great one is to try and describe to someone how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Just describe it and then ask someone to do exactly what you say in your instructions and see what the peanut butter and jelly sandwich looks like. I promise you it's not going to look like what you think it does. Your descriptions are much less clear than, than you think they are. In the case of the soft skills, there's an expression. It shows up in sort of art historical discourse in a meaningful way, really starting in the 19th century. But this artist named Ernst Gombrich comes up with this term or develops this term called 
called the beholder's share. And the idea is when we look at anything, but when we look at a work of art, we're reading our own experience into it. Those images trigger memories, right? And those memories trigger feelings, and those feelings in turn cause us to experience the work of art in a highly particular way. Now, if you and I look at the same work of art, the imagery might be the same, but our experiences that are uh, enabled by or that are influenced by that visual stimulus will be different. So you and I will react differently. We bring different beholder shares to it. And that opens up a really interesting conversation about how someone can see the same exact thing differently. So I might be checking my phone because I don't know if I have a missed call and I don't know if it's a butt dial or if it means someone is in trouble in my life. But if someone doesn't know that and they just see me on my phone, they might think I'm being rude. Right, So it opens up the conversation in a non-judgmental way mm-hmm. because we're doing it in a museum in front of a work of art, but the lesson is a transferable one. So that's a, an example of how thinking about vision and perception unlocks a soft skill learn. That's pretty amazing. I mean, so much I think we have to help people understand that there can be multiple truths that exist at the same time. Yes. And that everyone has a different perspective, and that's okay. That's why we're human beings, and that's what makes part of the diversity in our society so meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so the museum has done, and you've done, a lot of very intentional work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about your commitment to that and some of the progress that you've made and what you're proud of? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for asking. And of course, you know, the progress is a reflection of the institutional commitment. So while I am the CEO, nothing happens by one person alone. So it happens at the board level. And thank you so much for your service as a trustee. It happens at the staff level and happens at the volunteer level as well. So we're committed to integrating diversity, equity, access, and inclusion across all of those layers. So I guess the right way to answer that question from my point of view is the the commitment to diversity, equity, access, and inclusion has to, as I said, transcend a single person. That we need to make sure that if we're going to move the needle institutionally, if we're really serious about systems change, then we need to think about structural solutions and we need to think about ways to integrate DEAI, diversity, equity, access, and inclusion, into the fabric of the institution. So we've just released our belonging plan, which articulates how we actually operate those principles. And what we've done is we have literally, rather than saying DEAI lives over here, right, in a sort of separate corner or in a separate part of the organizational chart, we have worked to integrate diversity, equity, access, and inclusion into each of our four strategic objectives. Mm -hmm. So everyone on the Toledo Museum of Art team loves, I know, matrices, right? So there is a (laughs) matrix in the belonging plan that shows literally how diversity cuts across our four objectives, transitioned active outreach, broaden the narrative of art history, become an employer of choice, and create a platform for operational excellence. And the way diversity manifests in each of those four pillars is different than the way equity manifest is different than the way access manifests and so on and so forth. So there is an outcome that we've identified with a measurable metric associated with it mm-hmm. for each of those 16 boxes, DEA and I, four by four, our four objectives. 
So that's how we're driving the plan. And the way that we commit to doing it is to make sure that that work is integral to our strategy, that it's no one person's job. It's everybody's job. But at the end of the day, as the director, I am accountable. So the needle is moving, as you said, I think in important ways and measured across sort of very specific things like our census, measured across things like the nature of our visitation. But I think also in terms of projects that we're delivering that activate some of the potential of this plan. So we've broken ground already on a community gallery that will feature artworks by community artists, very much inspired by your great work at the Terhune Gallery here at Owens. So Bob and this Bob and Sue Savage have generously supported that effort. And that will become a real clearinghouse for our local artist community, which is something that we have under-engaged historically. We have created a new department, which is not responsible for DEAI, but is our belonging and community engagement department. So it might be worth just talking a little bit about how belonging and DEAI intersect. But mm-hmm. we've thought sort of where things like public programming reside, rather than being in marketing or rather than being in education. We've moved programs into our belonging and community engagement department. So we've made some of these structural shifts that we think are really going to, with the right resources and the right people in the right seats, you end up with that systems change. So our hypothesis, in short, is that by integrating diversity, equity, access, and inclusion into every facet of the organization, Mm -hmm. by making it integral, then we will ultimately create, as an emergent characteristic of that integration, a culture of belonging. Mm -hmm. That when we talk about belonging, it's not the next letter in an increasingly long acronym, right? I joke about education. First it was STEM, then it was STEAM. Now it's STREAM, right, with reading. And at some point you're just back to education. So it's not D, E, I, and B. It's actually that belonging emerges in an organization that integrates diversity, equity, access, and inclusion into every consideration that it makes. It's almost like you have created an operational change to infuse it as a value throughout the organization and created a system for accountability for something that's a value, but to your point, it doesn't make it seem like an add-on. It's not just one more thing. It is integral to what it is we're doing. Totally. And look, this is like a little bit in the weeds, but I think it's to your point. I think sometimes people think demonstrating commitment is about sort of the way one articulates on Twitter, right? But here's a great example, which you well know because you receive my biweekly emails to the board. So we just launched a new performance management system. And that performance management system assesses, will assess folks not just on what they do, but on how they do it. So it's not just about did you finish the task on time, but it's also how many glasses did you break along the way? Because we want to create a culture where people really work well together. So how do you assess the how? And the way you assess the how is you assess through competencies, through behavioral competencies. And we built our competencies on the values that our team identified, Mm -hmm. right? These are values that our entire museum, all 200 plus employees were engaged in creating when we launched our strategic plan. And two of those values are diversity and community. So there are hundreds of competencies that one can choose from, but we chose competencies that directly support our values so that we are literally assessing people Mm -hmm. and rewarding people for the ways that they demonstrate behaviors that center diversity, that center community, that center trust, another one of our values. So we really are sort of putting our money where our mouth is, redesigning systems that aren't public-facing, but that affect the way the entire organization operates in the service of delivering this culture of belonging and literally integrating diversity, equity, access, and inclusion into every facet. 
That's amazing. Well, one of the things when you talk about community and access, higher education and the Museum of Arts, I think in many ways share a similar challenge that sometimes people feel as though that's not the place for them or that somehow there's kind of that psychosocial reality that that there are barriers to them either engaging or feeling as though they belong, things of that nature. And for higher education, we've talked about access in a zillion different ways, be it funding or transportation or wraparound services, whatever it is, that looks a little different for the Museum of Arts. And part of what you've been doing is trying to engage with the community and the community art gallery. Talk a little bit about how art in and of itself isn't necessarily something ancillary, but how do you integrate it in the life of the community and create that access? Absolutely. And you're right. You know, these terms are slippery because they, just like a work of art, have multiple meanings that are context dependent. But if we think about access broadly and not just in terms of sort of ability, right, we are fortunate in the culture space that there is really good data on why people don't participate in Mm -hmm. cultural experience. And we have done some of our own analyses here in Toledo, engaging national firms to help us sort of unpack why people visit. And what we found is that the local and regional data maps onto the national data, which is not surprising because Toledo is very much a reflection of America in so many ways. It's part of what makes it such a fascinating place to do work like this. And the reasons that people don't visit museums are sort of very straightforward and sort of depends on which of these longitudinal surveys you look at in any given year, but they're pretty consistent. And they include things like transportation, cost, feeling like one doesn't have the time, feeling like the institution doesn't reflect or represent them. Mm -hmm. And this one is always sort of shocking to people because it is so straightforwardly solved. It is not a systems issue. It never having been invited. So we've totally re-engineered the way we think about outreach in response to the data. So if those are the top five reasons that one doesn't visit a museum, then we've designed our outreach to literally help get over each one of those hurdles. So we are targeting as our focus for the strategic plan, a two mile radius around the museum. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that those are all low-income census tracts, and they're the most under-indexed in our visitation, which you know is crazy to think that our nearest neighbors mm-hmm. are some of our least frequent consumers. But so focusing on a two-mile radius, it'll help us get sort of pedagogy and outreach methodology down in a way which is exportable beyond the two-mile radius. But mm-hmm. guess what? That greatly diminishes the need for transportation. It does. So focusing on a two-mile radius is part of the answer for us over this strategic plan, expandable thereafter. Cost is not an issue for us. We're free every day. We always have been. Um, it's a pretty remarkable thing. One of only about 33% of museums in America that are, and many of those are within university settings. So to be totally private and totally free is fairly remarkable. So we're free every day. Removes that barrier. Not reflecting the community that we serve. We're being very intentional, both in terms of the way that we approach our hiring and recruitment process in mm-hmm. particular, but also in the way that we're thinking about our collecting strategy focusing as ever on quality, but understanding that the aperture through which we were looking at quality was way too narrow. 
So broadening the narrative of art history, finding the greatest works of art from every culture, from every geography, and the systems change there is, well, make sure you have curators that can look for great artwork from every culture and every geography. So really rethinking the way that we tell the history of art and the types of artwork that we have on display, and then inviting people. We've totally changed our outreach approach. Mm -hmm. So rather than parachuting into a neighborhood and doing one program and not coming back, we've really taken the best practices of community organizing and bolted them on to the best practices of art education. So we've now hired educators that at the same time, on the same day, every week, multiple days a week, show up at locations in various neighborhoods. And not only are we delivering high quality art programming, but these employees are our chief invitation officers, Mm -hmm. right? They are literally saying to kids and families, come to the museum. It's for you. And oh, by the way, the museum isn't this intimidating building. It's me, right? Mm -hmm. I'll be there. I'll be happy to welcome you. I'll be happy to, we'll do programming together, right? In the family center, our free drop in art making space. We'll go up into the galleries together if and when you're comfortable. And the results, the early results have been so much better than even we could have imagined. And we are spinning up in neighborhoods two and three out of five within a two mile radius within the next few months. That's wonderful. So you mentioned earlier that I have the proud distinction and pleasure of serving on the board for the museum. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about my board orientation was learning the history of the Toledo Museum of Art and how, and I realize we've used this term several times already, integral it is to the community, how the community literally came together and said, this is something we need. We want only the best for Toledo because we deserve it. The focus on education and even how some of the early directors mobilized school children to help support the museum and keep it open. Can you Talk a little bit about the museum's commitment to education and what you do. Absolutely. You know, I think the Toledo Museum of Art is renowned for two things. It's renowned for the quality of its collection, but it is also renowned for being among the most community-oriented museums. And I think it's really important to say that our outreach work is an indication that we have a lot of work to do, but it is also true that relative to other museums, we are incredibly community-engaged already. So we need to be able to hold two things in our head, right? That we are an incredibly community-oriented museum and that there's you know, a lot of opportunity for improvement and we're really trying to do the latter without doing anything to disparage the former because it is in our DNA to care about community. Uh, And that shows up in the numbers, you know, so it's not just in educational numbers. We will typically pre-COVID have more student visitors per operating dollar than almost any art museum in America. But we also have one of the highest per capita attendance rates in America. We have up to 380,000 attendees in a metro area of 650,000 people. I mean, it's a remarkable thing. That is. And 80% of those visitors are from the region. So it bears itself out in the measurements and in the numbers as well. But yeah, our history is that we were founded in 1901. The current building opened in 1912. But that building was funded in part by gifts from donors that were matched by the community. There's sort of the famous penny drive where, you know, kids went into their classrooms and brought pennies with them. And the teachers aggregated the pennies and brought them to the museum to contribute to the building of the building in which we now reside. We've had incredible benefactors over the years, but one of the things which is sometimes lost from the narrative about the museum is there was no one founder. There's no person's name on the edifice, right? It is the Toledo Museum 
Museum of Art, and it was founded by seven incorporators, two of whom were industrialists, but one was a lawyer, one was an architect, one was an artist, right? It really was a community effort that brought this museum into existence. And you're right, our second director, our first director only served for two years, unfortunately, he passed, right? But our second director, George Stevens, who served for an incredibly long time, introduced this idea that we were fundamentally an educational and community outreach or community engagement institution. Mm -hmm. And it's been in our DNA ever since. He let students visit the museum unaccompanied by adults. That was pretty radical at the time. As long as uh, students knew three facts, kids knew three facts about works of art, they could be described as docents, right? And sort of one of the earliest such programs of its kind. So, you know, I could go on and on, but our commitment to education, which is still manifest today in our outreach efforts, in our classes, and in our galleries is something which is really, really important to us. And the community feels an incredible sense of pride and ownership. And that's why we have the community buy-in and engagement that we do. But it's amazing. As someone who's never lived in Toledo, it was an opportunity really to learn about the history of Toledo through the establishment of the museum. And so it was it was wonderful experience for me. And so earlier you referenced our Terhune Gallery here at our campus in Perrysburg at Owens. And you know, we have several academic programs for students who mm-hmm. are interested in the arts as a career. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to any student who was interested in pursuing art as a career? So I, I suppose there are two things that I would say. So one is don't limit yourself to your traditional idea about how the arts can intersect with a career. Every product is made, every product is designed, right? In the 21st century where every business needs a digital presence, right? You imagery is more important than ever. Every brand needs to think about how they tell their story and that requires visuals, it requires music, that the skill set that the arts confer mm-hmm. is hugely important in every arena, that there are arts jobs in every company and every sector, that creativity is something which is never going to be devalued. In fact, when you look at sort of the top five skills that won't be automated, right, creativity is one of them. Mm -hmm. So the arts are valuable anywhere and everywhere. So if your passion is the arts, be open to the possibilities and you will be able to find something that sort of keeps you energized every day you go to work. But the other thing I'd say is if you specifically want to work in the arts, if you specifically want to work for an arts organization, then there is no better first step than taking the first step. I do find that sometimes we imagine the perfect first job and we hold out for the perfect first job. Mm -hmm. But the best thing you could do if you want to work for a museum just take a job at a museum and then do a really great job and you will develop the reputation for being the bright, committed, passionate person and institutions love to hire from within. Mm-hmm. Love to promote when they can. So take take the job that's available, even if it's not the job you want. And like, lest you think that that is not something that I've done, that is very much how I started my career. I made a sort of difficult decision to take the first job, and it ended up being a remarkable experience at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But I left something else that I was equally passionate about to take this job, which was not a curatorial job. But it was really important, and it allowed me to develop in ways that I think contributed to my being able to have this conversation with you. 
So do you want to share any details about your career path? So the career path conversation is always an interesting one because I also remind people that a press release always makes things look really linear. The short version of the story is I'm from New York. I went away to college. I went further away to graduate school, as you cataloged. Then I came back to New York, and I was working at the Met in the Greek and Roman department, which is where I thought, I would be for a really long time because my PhD is in Roman art history. I was about to adjust your background. Yeah. So, and back in New York at the Met, which is the institution I sort of grew up going to the most in my department of choice and took the opportunity to get the foot in the door Mm -hmm. in a role called collections management assistant or associate. So not a curatorial role, but I was able to help with curatorial tasks and, you know, hoped that my presence there and doing good work would manifest into other things. And it did. It just happened to be that the other thing was in Toledo, Ohio. So I came here for what I thought would be two years and then had an unbelievable professional opportunity to stay, but also had a strong personal one. Met my fiance, who is an mm-hmm. Owens graduate, and ended up being here for six years. Mm-hmm. At five and a half years in, thought for sure I would be here longer, and then ended up in Jacksonville, Florida, at a remarkable institution down there called the Commer Museum of Art and Gardens, mm-hmm. and went down there with every intention to be there for a really long time. Uh, and my predecessor here left and took an opportunity on the East Coast, and the position opened up far earlier than I, th- I would have thought and had the opportunity to boomerang back, which was a very tough decision because really loved Jacksonville and was committed to what they were doing. But for personal and professional reasons, was really energized by the idea of coming back. The personal I've already discussed, but in the professional a little bit. Toledo is mm-hmm. just such a rich and unique opportunity to do meaningful things for our community, but also for the sector um, that it felt like I couldn't pass up the opportunity. So incredibly nonlinear. It was very tough for me to leave Jacksonville because mm-hmm. I felt that was a, that was a short stint, mm-hmm. and I felt I felt badly. But it's you know you weigh all the variables and you make the best decision that you can. And this is an amazing place to live. Yeah, it's an amazing institution, and my fiance's family is here. Yeah, it was, it was a hard thing to say no to. Absolutely, family is important. That drives a lot of the decisions that we make. Family first. Yep. And the Toledo community has really embraced you, and I think is very privileged and fortunate to have you here. And you talked about your career and all of the places in your journey working at some very well-respected institutions. You are the youngest director in the history of the Toledo Museum of Art. Talk about what you think has contributed to your success. The first point, that while I am the youngest director in the history of the museum, it's only by one year that Roger Mandel was a very young director Mm -hmm. and that my predecessor, Brian Kennedy, was an incredibly young director when he took the National Gallery of Australia job, which is a Mm -hmm. huge job. So I'm very fortunate that in the Toledo Museum of Art, and actually Don Bacigalupi, who was the director before Brian, was at one point the youngest museum director in America. So I'm fortunate that previous directors have been able to serve as wonderful mentors for me. And in fact, I try to speak to every living director of the museum at least every few months. Some Mm -hmm. I speak with more frequently. But part of the solve for when you're young is make sure you talk to people, right, who have more experience than you. And I try to do that all the time, whether it's with the board, whether it's with previous directors, or whether it's with other folks in the field, solicit opinions broadly. But clearly, I've had to sort of think about this a lot. And it's a question that one gets asked a lot. And the way I sort of think about it is age is correlated with wisdom, but it's correlated with wisdom because of experience. You live more, you experience more. I'm very fortunate that I've had a lot of experiences very early. 
and a lot of them haven't gone well. I have front-loaded failures in my life and metabolized <laughs> them. You know, I think I'm an okay manager, better than I was because I've managed and learned how to do it. I think I'm a pretty good leader, but it's only because in a previous part of my life when I was an entrepreneur and started a couple companies, but the first one I started, I was a disastrous leader. I made every mistake, right? It was like the proverbial 21-year-old CEO. I was awful. Fortunately, I learned the lessons by and large, but I think all of those things, we don't talk enough about those, but that broad set of experiences, not all of which worked, but all of which were lessons are part of the reasons that, you know, I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to serve in this role. And time will tell whether I'm successful or not. But it's an incredible privilege and honor. I don't take it for granted. And uh, I'm absolutely committed to doing my best for this community. That's wonderful. No, it's, it's amazing because I do think that a lot of times people incorrectly is probably too strong a word, but people supplant age, wisdom, things of that nature when they're not synonymous. And I think that we all have examples that we know in our work lives and in our personal lives to where they're not necessarily one and the same. And so experience, talent, drive, there's a lot to be said for the complete package that one brings to their work. And so you mentioned your entrepreneurial ventures, and some of those have continued. And so you have a company that you started, Art Research Technologies. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in starting your own business? We have our school of business. There's interest in entrepreneurship, and how do we move that forward? How do we help students who may be interested in something else but in starting their own career? We know that, you know, as a society, and this was hastened by the pandemic, people who have side jobs or interests are turning them more and more into their main means of supporting themselves and their families. And so anything that you can share about your experience, I think, would be really helpful. Yeah, of course. So our research technology is sort of as a firm that applied quantitative approaches to the art market. And this was the company that I was a sort of disastrously bad CEO of. <laughs> but we but we had good intellectual property. So in the end, it all worked out. But it was sort of in spite of me, not because of me. And then we have also have incubated a business within the Toledo Museum of Art called the Center of Visual Expertise, mm -hmm. which is doing incredibly well, sort of applies some of the lessons learned. And then there was sort of a, you know, a third company besides. So I've sort of approached this from a number of different angles. But I think the, the most important thing I would say to sort of entrepreneurs is that's sort of the bedrock of our economic engine, right? Mm -hmm. So your impulse is great, right? If you're interested in starting a company, right, and it energizes you, then have at it. But be realistic in your forecasting. Mm -hmm. Be realistic in your budgeting. Be very, very honest with yourself about what types of risk you're willing to take on. Mm -hmm. And I know that Owens provides all of the resources to help entrepreneurs think these things through. But the rush to get something started can end up being a huge setback. Mm -hmm. So every entrepreneur thinks that their business is going to be successful. It's about being really, really thoughtful and planful about what happens if it doesn't succeed. Mm -hmm. That is going to be hugely important and is going to allow you to absorb a failure and take those lessons and metabolize them and push them forward or have it be sort of a one-stop you know, opportunity and then you're never going to sort of be able to come back to it. Mm 
-hmm. right? So just go into it understanding your downside, protecting your downside as much as you can so that when you do learn lessons, you'll have an opportunity to put them to good use in the future rather than have this be your one and only try at starting a business. Mm -hmm. I think that sounds like really good advice. Well, the worst advice is advice. So, you know, maybe it's, <laughs> well, it's certainly it's, or what's the expression, right? The advice is free. So it's probably worth what people are paying for it. But to say it differently, you're going to be much more successful the second time you try something and even more successful the third time, as long as you can pay forward the lessons learned. Mm -hmm. So everyone may think they have a hundred percent chance of success, but if you statistically have less than a 10% chance of success, then Take the risk because it stokes a passion and because you could be successful, but make sure that you're doing what you can. If you are in that 90% plus, mm -hmm. be able to pay those lessons forward. Sounds great. Now, you know, as we're getting close to winding down, you were recently part of the Ability Center's announcement to share expansion of their Think Differently campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and that's designed to bring awareness um, to issues of accessibility. Can you talk a little more about that initiative and your partnership with them? Yeah, of course. And this is why when we were talking about access before, I mm -hmm. said talking about it most broadly because we do have this um, incredible partnership with the Ability Center, sort of begun with um, uh, previous Ability Center executive director, Tim Harrington, but continued under the current ED, Stuart James, who's just doing a remarkable job. He's come into the community, you know, sort of like a lightning strike. It's been amazing to see the pace at which he's moving. And really pushing forward this idea that Toledo has the capacity to become the most disability-friendly community in this country, which aligns very strongly with, to put it differently, actually, we support that. And the way that we can support that most directly is by becoming the most disability-friendly museum in America. So we were honored to be part of the launch of the Think Differently campaign. We're honored to be in, involved in a suite of different programs with the Ability Center. But the signature program of that partnership is the creation of a role called the Manager of Access Initiatives mm -hmm. at the Toledo Museum of Art. And there are other museums that have individuals dedicated to access, but the structure of this is slightly different because in addition to investing in accelerating our pathway to greater access at the museum, it's also structured in a way that builds capacity within our community. Mm -hmm. So effectively, the model is that the Ability Center and the museum are co-funding this position, and this position doesn't just address access issues at the museum, but also is learning lessons about how to facilitate structures or systems change at anchor institutions. Mm -hmm. So the change management expertise around access is something that the Ability Center can then leverage with other partners as it seeks to drive accessibility initiatives across all of the other organizations in this community. Mm -hmm. And just as the museum with community outreach, I also have to give a shout out to my colleagues who are the cultural leaders of this organization. Because while we have a lot of work to do to create the most disability-friendly community in America, the work that the Metro Park and Dave Zanker are doing, the work that Jason Cushman, the library are doing, the work that Tarda is doing 
the work that the city is doing to create an office dedicated to disability access. I mean, we're not starting from a standstill. And so we've got momentum. Stuart's leveraging it brilliantly, and we're delighted to be a part of the effort. You touched on something that I know is part of what I enjoy about being in Northwest Ohio. It really seems easy to build coalitions and to get partners and to collaborate in areas that you know you may not recognize at the outset that you have similar goals or similar challenges or things in common that you can accomplish together. And I think that's really a great example of part of what makes Northwest Ohio so special. I think I not only do I think that's true, I think there's something in the culture that contributes to openness and, and willingness to do that. But I did mention before, I speak to every sort of living director of the art museum. I care deeply about history as a historian. So I've done my best to sort of understand the history, not just of the museum, but also of the city. And I also think it's worth saying it probably hasn't always been that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a group of leaders currently, and this is a group of leaders that was working on it before you and I arrived, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, there's no self-congratulations here. But I think people like Mark Folk at the Arts Commission or like Joe Napoli at the Mud Hens, who have been thinking a lot about how to create community coalitions, Mm -hmm. have really created fertile ground. And as new leaders have come in, I think we've been able to take advantage of the space that they've created Mm -hmm. in facilitating these dialogues. So I I couldn't agree with you more. It is incredibly easy, but I also think it's important to acknowledge the hard work of people who have made it easy, because I do not think it was always thus. It is something that you truly appreciate when you're the uh, beneficiary of it. Totally. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'm delighted to obviously be able to talk with you. I so admire and respect the vision that you have for Owens. And I think it's part of the reason you're such an amazing contributor to the board so quickly. And really, it's an honor to have you serving on the board. But just to parlay that into my really only other comment, which is I think Owens is an amazing place. And I don't know enough about the community college landscape to say that it's unique, but I think the constellation of things from its arts programming to its sports teams, its athletic programs, I really think Owens is a vital part of this region's success. And I'm really excited to find ways for us to continue to build on our relationship and turn it into meaningful institutional collaboration. We've got a few irons in the fire, but it's really, really exciting to take this fertile ground we've inherited and think laterally about the types of partnerships we can put together that move the community forward. It's such a treasure, Owens. So the ability to work together and to help fulfill your vision for the place is really important to me. So thank you for having me. And uh, just wanted all the listeners to know how much I respect and admire what you're doing and that the museum is here to help support. I can't thank you enough for your very kind words, your very thoughtful kind words. I believe that I've inherited an institution that really is part of our community. And I know that early on, people asked me what has surprised me. I knew that Owens was important to the community, but the degree to which is amazing. And I know that that is because of our faculty, our staff, all the past leadership at Owens, the state and how the State Board of Higher Education supports us, and really how our community supports us. I really think that the partnerships that we've talked about, opportunities to work together, really build upon the legacy that we've both inherited and how we're able to move that forward really for a better community, a better region, and a better world. Absolutely. Dr. Adam Levine, it has been my absolute pleasure to talk to you a little more today. I'm thrilled that you were able to share some time and expertise, and I'm very grateful for our time together today. I'm so grateful to have been on. Thank you. Thank you. 
Adam, thank you so much for being with us today. It's fascinating to hear your perspective on the arts and the critical role they play in our education and in our communities. I'm very proud of our arts community here at Owens, and every time we get the chance to talk, I'm even more proud of our collective efforts to support emerging artists and the broader arts community in Northwest Ohio. Adam, we are grateful for your support and for your time today. And thank you to all of our listeners. Remember to subscribe and please join us for future conversations. Next time, we'll be talking to Mark Vasilishan, Sheriff of Wood County and an alumnus of Owens Community College. Until then, take care.